Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. It's summertime, and if you're sweltering in the heat, you can at least mentally cool off by heading north to the Arctic with us. To wintertime and the wonder of the majestic caribou. They've ranged over the lands there for millennia, but the caribou are threatened by the effects of a warming world, as are the people who rely on them for so much. Now work is underway to protect the population and the climate. I have to warn you though, our second half may cause your temperature to rise again. You know the term carbon footprint? It was invented by an oil and gas giant for reasons that help protect its bottom line. Put the blame on individuals, make them feel responsible. Words are powerful, so it's only right to scrutinize just what companies like ExxonMobil say in public and in private about our changing climate. Welcome to an encore edition of What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. The name is Paul Quassa, but uh, that, that's a name that the government gave me. My original name is, of course, Arolak, and that's the name I was born with. Paul was born in an igloo at a hunting camp in what is now Nunavut. He's been a politician, a journalist, and an advocate for the traditional Inuit way of life. Part of that means protecting the caribou that have provided them with food, clothing, and tools. As a child, he remembered his first hunt and what he learned about his people. The first excitement is uh, being woken up by your your father that uh, early in the morning that you're going out hunting. And, And that's the excitement, just waking up and knowing that uh, that you're going to be out there and and you're you're focusing on getting one. Uh, once you catch your first caribou, that's when you start knowing what sharing means. In our tradition, uh, the first animal that you catch as a young boy or a young young girl, uh, the first thing you do is to share amongst the community and just leave small pieces for yourself. You know, not just hunting, but that you'll be able to share the meat to your grandmother, your grandfather, your aunt. And uh, it's a great feeling to, once you catch one and and everybody is there uh, congratulating you. It is part of our culture to, to, uh, to teach our young children as young as they can be to catch their first animal so that uh, that you can share amongst your peers. (music) 
To get a lay of the land when it comes to caribou across the country, we've reached Justina Ray. She's president and senior scientist of Wildlife Conservation Society Canada, and she's made the caribou the focus of much of her work over the past 15 years. Justina Ray, hello. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Now, you assessed populations in the early 2000s and then again in 2017. Can you tell me how things have changed? In almost all cases, things uh, have gotten much worse. In a number of cases, a few of the units that had been assessed back in the early 2000s went from special concern all the way to endangered. And then one instance, uh, in a couple of instances, there had been no concerns at all to even have an assessment early on. And then now they're both threatened. Can I just get you to describe what you mean when you say a unit? When you look at sort of the kind of the evolutionary distinctiveness, if you will, of, of caribou, you, uh, we have about 11 units across caribou. So, you know, the boreal caribou, different kinds of mountain caribou, we've got barren ground caribou, we've got eastern migratory caribou, and so on. Of course, the impacts of climate change vary depending on where we are, where caribou are. So let's take a look at, at what that means for caribou. Let, let's start with the territories. How is climate change affecting the herds in the territories? Um, in the far north, uh, of course, uh, climate change impacts and you know temperature changes have been the most severe. But because climate interacts with so many other factors, it's not always so clear what the smoking gun is in terms of what are driving some of the declines that are happening right now. But what we do know about climate change impacts are both summer and winter. So in the summer areas, you know, when you've got longer and hotter, warmer summers, um, you know, things like insects harassment and such become much more of a problem. I mean, uh, wind and temperature and precipitation are usually able to provide some refuge for these animals. But in the warmer and longer summers, this becomes much more difficult. You've also got, um, you know, issues of fire in the winter ranges of many of these animals. Um, even some of the northern herds rely on, on winter ranges where fire then starts to uh, impact some of their very important habitats, which by itself is not a problem because they've been, you know, living with fire for so many years. But if you've got industrial disturbance on the landscapes as well, this can start to preclude options in terms of really good habitat because they do need trees uh, that are at least 40, often 80 and plus years old, because that's the kind of unbroken habitat that is really required for these caribou, but also, um, you know, for some of their winter food sources in particular, lichen are really only thriving in those older aged forests. And that's just one to begin with. And, and what about the changes to sea and lake ice? How does that affect them? Yeah, so a lot of these caribou, particularly in the north, um, are dependent on you know, that's where all these islands are, and they're dependent on being able to cross sea ice to get from island to island. They're very rarely that does any caribou herd live on one island. In fact, I can't think of any that do for their entire, you know, 12 months a year. And so they rely on sea ice to travel. And that can become very precarious under certain circumstances of, of climate change. I mean, we know that sea ice is being very affected by the, the changing conditions that are coming about by climate. And then you add to that the fact that there's more travel by shipping, uh, by boats uh, during certain times of year, which can make the crossover that much more precarious. One of the most famous herds is the dolphin and union herd. And it's a very unique herd because it travels across the sea ice 
from Victoria Island uh, down to the mainland very habitually twice a year. And during the October, uh, which is about to happen not too long from now, they have to wait longer and longer for the sea ice conditions to be uh, robust enough for them to go across. And uh, they need to do that. That's part of their life. That's part of what they need to be able to do. And um, that herd has been declining significantly over the last several decades. Okay, let's take it further south, where, where there is less ice, but there's more forest. You'd think that with more forest, they'd do all right. Yeah, I mean, I already talked about the fire, and, and uh, that can be uh, quite significant, especially the further south you go where there's a bigger industrial footprint. So where, you know, you already have a low supply of habitat, you've got more wolves and other predators because, you know, it's more hospitable for white-tailed deer and elk and so forth. And all of this really just causes more, you know, expenditure of energy, right? And energy that leads to, you know, ability to be able to have adequate nutrition for mothering, for rearing young. And all of these events just sort of kind of snowball on top of each other. They really exacerbate the, a lot of the threats that they're experiencing anyway. Wow, with, with so much going on and, and it's being different from different herds to other herds, how challenging is it to figure out what they need? Well, it's really challenging. And let me be clear that, you know, climate change has not always been the biggest threat. And it's arguable in some places whether it is still the biggest threat at this point or yet the biggest threat at this point. The concern is that climate is starting to take over as a significant stress, right? So they're both happening at once and exacerbating whatever is happening at all. What needs to occur is that um, we have to do what we can to confirm more resilience to these herds where we can. So being much more forethoughtful about you know changes that are to come and how our land use and the way that we use the land could potentially exacerbate those changes in the future. Well, okay, then what is being done right now to conserve and protect them? Well, so that's a huge question across Canada, but I would say not enough. <laughs> Caribou is a terrific example of standing in the way of opportunity costs. I mean, we have a lot of aspirations for the same lands, uh, economic aspirations for the same lands on which caribou make their home. And so there's a lot of trade-offs. I mean, there was a time where perhaps we could do all of it, uh, but increasingly um, caribou are not able to persist uh, very well in areas where we also have uh, lots of designs for economic development. I saw a story in the last couple of years about a, a, a pen being set up, and this was in British Columbia for her mm-hmm. there, where, where mothers can rear their, their baby caribou safely and, and keeping wolves at bay. Um, there's also the culling of wolves. How well do those things work? Yeah, I mean, these kind of projects are being undertaken in instances where the caribou herd in question is either at drastically low levels or perhaps even gone from the area. So the thing that's required is a really what we call kind of intensive last-ditch efforts, which is where you protect the mothers and their calves through the most vulnerable period of the calf's life, uh, but you also have to then manage, um, which means cull predators around uh, the area because they've been allowed to proliferate at unnatural levels because of the way that the overall habitat has changed through habitat clearing and, and so on. And so these intensive efforts do work in the sense that they will allow for females and their calf to survive much better than they would if they were left out there to defend for themselves. 
And the culling of predators does take pressure off of these animals. And in certain circumstances, you know, we've been able to see some increases in populations as a result. But even when these intensive efforts are put in place, they're not put in place as a stopgap in the way that they have been promised because continual habitat clearing happens anyway. Can I ask you this, though? Why does it matter? Caribou are an extraordinary symbol of, of, of uh, boreal forests. They're a symbol because we don't know about a lot of the other biodiversity. We know a lot more about caribou. Their needs are significant. And if we can't keep caribou around, that says a lot for other biodiversity elements that we don't have as much knowledge about. We also know a lot about what it means to keep caribou. Uh, We have a lot of science that knows what we should be able to do. So if we don't do that, that says a lot about sort of our choices. And so the symbols uh, that extend from our quarter to uh, just, uh, you know, the huge disproportionate responsibility that Canada has for caribou globally in terms of uh, our country and how many uh, caribou persist here and how much we are losing some of them, that in and of itself is also a significant importance. Not to mention they are just such beautiful, majestic animals. Have you ever seen one yourself? Uh, some of my best experiences have been from the airplane and like small airplanes where it's just me and the pilot and uh, we're going over pretty slowly over terrain that uh, where you can't see much human sign. And then you start to see tracks and you know, based on experience, what you're going to see sort of over the hill, if you will. And then uh, the the feeling of moving a certain distance, having those tracks multiply and then seeing caribou every which way around the side of the, of the plane. Because if you have windows on both sides of the plane and you can see them all as far as the eye can see. And it's such a privilege to be able to see such abundance the way that it should be. And know that uh, the privilege of being in these spaces where few of us have had the opportunity to frequent because they're so remote. But that is often and only where caribou are able to persist today and nearly the natural levels that they were once. Um, and so knowing that gives the experience an extra flavor, if you will. You, you have been doing this work for so many years, and it does, though, seem like things are only getting worse. Um, what keeps you going? What gives you hope? Well, um, I, uh, it's just the imperative. Like, I wake up every day with a certain amount of motivation, um, and it does, just doesn't go away. I mean, there's so much to do. And there's so many people who find this to be important and who I meet and encounter every day. So I have enormous motivation. I have goodly amount of rage <laughs> that propels me as well. And the next generation, right? Like, so there's no shortage of any of that. So I'm continuing to go. <laughs> well, I thank you so much for your time and your knowledge and, and your rage and whatever else you bring to the table. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. So we've heard caribou are sensitive to the degradation of their habitat by oil and gas development, logging, and also by climate change. But research shows protecting caribou habitat would have other benefits for the climate. Our producer, Molly Siegel, explains. Look at a map of Canada, and the boreal forest stretches from east to west. Boreal caribou range overlaps with a lot of that, across the north of most provinces and the south of the territories. Most of that land is unprotected. Figuring out how to protect more of it is a challenge, 
So, I mean, I think the backpack analogy is a pretty, a pretty good one. Amanda Martin is a research scientist at Environment and Climate Change Canada. The backpack or knapsack analogy goes like this. You have a knapsack, but it can only hold so much weight. You're headed off to school, and you need to decide what to bring. Some objects may be more useful to pack than others. So, for example, pencils may be something that's useful for multiple things, whereas your lunch is probably not going to help you get your math homework done. And so this method is trying to look at these different values. Martin is applying this knapsack analogy to caribou and all the other challenges in the mix. We need to act in concert together to protect biodiversity. Challenges like protecting about a third of land and oceans in Canada by the end of the decade. The same year Ottawa hopes to tackle another promise. Our new climate target for 2030 is to reduce our 2005 emission levels by 40 to 45 percent. And there are other barriers. Budgets are limited, right? And so trade-offs have to be made. Cheryl Johnson is a research scientist with Environment and Climate Change Canada. She started studying caribou in 2009 and has watched them decline year after year with little action from governments. I guess it kind of um, lit a fire with respect now, to... Johnson is getting me. strategic. Probably the best strategy in terms of trying to get things done is make links. Links between boreal caribou and those big goals from Ottawa, emissions and biodiversity. If you protected habitat for boreal caribou, would it also help protect habitat for other species at risk in Canada? At the same time, we were also interested in knowing if you protected habitat for boreal caribou, could it help protect these areas that are very, very important for carbon storage? And another question Johnson has, can protecting habitat also save climate refugia, pockets of land that stay cool and could become safe havens for some species in a warming world? Those are the questions, but like most things climate related, the answers are not simple. There isn't like pick one area and we'll solve all our problems uh, solution available. Still, their preliminary results show a lot of overlap. 80% of the boreal habitat they looked at has at least one other benefit in addition to caribou. And one in particular seems to really stand out. I think in terms of soil carbon storage, it was actually one of the most widespread benefits that came out of the three that we examined. It actually covered about 35% of the distribution of boreal caribou. So there's lots of opportunities in terms of protecting habitat for boreal caribou and protecting areas that store carbon in the soil. Johnson says that includes parts of Saskatchewan, Northwest Territories, Manitoba, and Ontario. And then... BC and Alberta actually came up as two regions where there would be a lot of benefit to other species at risk. And in central Quebec and Labrador, a trifecta of protection. Caribou habitat, climate refugia, and unique species. As a scientist, Johnson doesn't make the policies but she hopes the research will help guide others. Using boreal caribou as a proxy or something to help you make decisions that are good for the entire boreal ecosystem, our study shows that that's valuable. 
So let's head back to Nunavut and Paul Kwasa, whom we heard from earlier. He's a former premier and over the years worked on developing a land use plan. Part of it is devoted to caribou protection in the region. But after many years and many meetings, it still hasn't been adopted. Kwasa told me that falling caribou numbers have meant sharp restrictions on the caribou hunt. Caribous are on moratorium. We can only hunt them at certain time of the season, and you can only hunt this many. So, you know, and, and uh, here in Nikaluit, for example, we can only hunt 48, and there's about uh, probably like five, 7,000 of us who wants to go out there and hunt, and you can only catch 48, so very limited these days. Uh, sharing is is a different thing, too, because it is frustrating. Our hunters and trappers organizations are getting frustrated because they're being so, they, you know, the hunts are being so limited. You know, in the first place, when we started negotiating our land claims, that was the whole purpose, was to was to ensure that we retain our, our, our culture, which is uh, hunting. You've painted this picture of a, such a limited number that, that you're able to hunt, and that is in order to protect the caribou. How does the population of caribou compare to when you were a child? Were, were there plentiful caribou everywhere you looked? I mean, if we, if I look at uh, the numbers, and, and certainly uh, in, my, in our young days, in our heydays, you know, the caribou's uh, herds pretty well everywhere were well over 400,000, 500,000 strong, seven in, in some cases, like George River in northern Quebec, was over 800,000 uh, in our young days. And Baffin Island had over about almost 300,000, you know, as far as uh, 1991 in, in my young days. Now, all these herds have drastically cut down. Uh, but again, there's been so many factors, I believe, that, that has changed the numbers drastically, and I think climate change and and how we put our protection measurements uh, within our territory, I think, are the two most important things that 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 we do need to uh, watch over. And uh, again, I can say that uh, it, it's often said that forms of wildlife management are not to you know, per se, manage animals, but to manage people. And I think that is so vitally important now. And, and when you talk about this idea of managing the people, there there is the land use plan, the Nunavut land use plan, that is, is guess, meant to do that and protect the caribou. It's at a consultation phase right now. How would the plan help protect the caribou as the landscape continues to change because of climate change? I think it's so vitally important that we do have a strong uh, Nunavut land use plan. Yes, you're right. It's been in the works for over 20 years. Uh, you know, it have been uh, wanting to see uh, a concrete uh, land use plan where protection is uh, is is uh, is given to all the uh, all the caribou herds, their calving ground. I think we have to be more proactive rather than reactive uh, into these areas. And, and, and the land use plan itself is, is so full of Inuit which means Inuit traditional knowledge, 
And uh, I think that has to be respected. I hear all of that, but I also hear you saying it's been 20 years and it still hasn't been put in place. Is it because of the competing interests like mining or development? Why is it not in place already? Well, again, it, it's it's mostly the governments, and and uh, again, the uh, the signatories to the Nunavut Land Claims Agreement are the federal government, the territorial government, and Nunavut Tungavik Incorporated, which is the uh, the main Inuit organization that oversees the implementation of the Nunavut Land Claims Agreement. These are the bodies that have been holding on you know, trying to uh, put in their interest rather than the interest of the community in most cases. And I think that's what's holding it up. I thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much. Paul Kwasa is a former premier and MLA in Nunavut. Now, we spoke with Paul last fall, so we checked back, and public hearings for the land use plan are slated for September. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. listening to What on Earth here on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. We love hearing your thoughts on the program, so send us an email. The address is earth at cbc.ca, or you can follow us on Twitter at CBC What on Earth or me at Laura Lynch CBC. Well, first it was tobacco, then opioids, Now there's a new wave of litigation against fossil fuel companies. The claim? That their products are causing the harm now associated with climate change, wildfires, extreme weather, floods, and the damage they create. Though the current lawsuits are almost all in the United States, there are cities in Canada that are considering launching their own legal actions against fossil fuel companies for the millions, even billions of dollars needed to deal with the effects of climate change. Toronto is one of them. Before the pandemic, it held committee hearings on the idea. Our next speaker is Aviva Gail Bunsel. Hi, thank you for the opportunity to speak here. My name is Aviva. I'm 18 years old. I voted for the first time in this past election, and it was really exciting. I want to show my support of this motion, of pursuing compensation for the cost of climate change to the City of Toronto, and to say some of what is on my mind about the crisis we are in. I remember very clearly the first time I learned about climate change. I was sitting in my classroom in grade four, and my teacher said, look out the window. You see the snow falling and the sun shining. It's a nice winter day, and everything looks okay. But it is not. Our earth is in crisis. And at the time, from what I remember, I was shocked and scared and wondering what was being done. What could I do to help? 
And was it too late? I'm still asking the same questions nine years later. The only thing I now know is that it is not too late. But we need to take this seriously, and we need to act now. I ask that you support this motion because at the moment, we do not know the whole detailed impact climate change has had on Toronto. It is important to hold fossil fuel companies and major polluters accountable for putting profit and money over the lives of future generations. It is especially disturbing if, like with the tobacco industry, they knew about the negative impacts, but carried on anyways. If they can pay some of the price, then maybe the City of Toronto could focus more money and resources on projects which could help the Earth. And the problem isn't only the fossil fuel companies, but the great dependence our society has on fossil fuels. We need to make a more sustainable system immediately, and this will take everybody, and all governments, taking action and prioritizing the environment. This is a great opportunity for Toronto and Canada to become a leader on making real sustainable solutions. And I ask you, as the Infrastructure and Environment Committee, to prioritize taking action on climate change. If I have children, or maybe grandchildren, I want to be able to tell them a story. I want the story to say something like, there was this huge problem threatening all of humanity, but we came together and we found our courage and we took action. It was difficult, but we did it and you don't have to worry. We as humans are the authors of this story right now, and the plot is up to us every day. The future depends on us. Thank you. Wow. Um, well, I tracked down Aviva Gail Munsell. She's now 20 years old, and she's at York University enrolled in environmental studies. Hello, Aviva. Hello, Laura. Great to be here. What is it like for you to hear yourself from back then? It was a really great day, and it kind of brings me back to that day and that excitement and it's feelings of empowerment and inspiration to be a part of supporting that really important motion. It also kind of reminds me how, you know, there's so much to do, and it's, it's, it's been two years, and my feelings of panic and worry for the future just kind of continue to rise. So far, there's been no lawsuit filed by the City of Toronto. That's a decision delayed at least partly by the pandemic. But Aviva still wants to see oil companies taken to court. Definitely, yeah. Um, it's so important for a number of reasons, especially the idea that they knew. Um, they knew the environmental impacts and the health impacts of their products decades before uh, the rest of us and didn't say anything. And not only did they not say anything, but promoted a lot of like individualistic um, kind of conservative lingo and blame distracting from their impact. What Aviva's talking about there is the fossil fuel giants saying consumers must take responsibility for their own role in burning their products, something she disagrees with. Just recently this year, I learned that the carbon footprint is actually a concept that came out of a oil company, a BP. Um, it kind of came out as a way of distraction and of putting some of the blame on of the crisis on individuals. And ob obviously, reducing one's carbon footprint is important. And But really, we have to, you know, kind of look at this deeper systems change. Now you heard Aviva Gail Bunsell's belief that oil and gas companies have made you feel as if climate change is something you need to take responsibility for. 
Well, there's peer-reviewed research to back up her claim. A study from Harvard University analyzed the words and phrases employed by ExxonMobil over the past few decades. It finds the language the company used internally was very different from what it told the public. Research fellow Jeffrey Supran and Professor Naomi Oreskes are the authors of the paper, and you might recognize Oreskes as the co-author of the book Merchants of Doubt. She and Jeffrey Supran join me now. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great to be with you. At a glance, what is the main takeaway from your new paper? So um, this is the first peer-reviewed computational analysis of how ExxonMobil, as you said, has used language to subtly but very systematically shape the way the public talks about climate change, um, and, and as it turns out, often in misleading ways. So we found, for example, that the company deploys PR techniques mimicking the tobacco industry to shift responsibility for climate change away from itself and onto its consumers. We've also found that the company uses rhetoric and framing to downplay the reality and seriousness of climate change and also to present fossil fuel dominance as reasonable and inevitable. All right, that's a good summary, and we're going to dig into each of those things that you talked about there. You actually went more than through more than 200 documents from ExxonMobil. How did you go through them? You, you mentioned that phrase, computational analysis. Um, if you can talk about that in a way people like me can understand, <laughs> what is the method that you used, and how did you avoid bias? Yeah, so these um, text databases, which comprise both the company's very public-facing communications, but also the ones it it, it uttered more quietly and internally and in academic circles. These databases are real treasure troves of information. But the trick is you have to crack the code and spot the patterns in the way they use language. And if you do that, you can reveal insights hiding in plain sight about, for example, maybe how their public affairs teams have been working to frame the climate crisis. So we use these various um, computational techniques, basically pretty straightforward statistical algorithms, code that we run on our computer. And essentially what we do is we pass all the original text, uh, all the original communications from ExxonMobil on climate change through these algorithms and outrise um, really distinctive terms and topics that they have either emphasized or de-emphasized in, in the public domain. So it's really just the computer picking out things then. Is it, can you do it in a way that avoids bias? Yeah, so um, the most straightforward of the techniques we use are called corpus comparison algorithms. That's just a fancy way to statistically compare how often terms and topics appear in one set of documents compared to another. And these techniques actually could be done just by hand if you wanted to. It would just involve sifting through all of these documents and, for example, just counting how often they say a given word or phrase and then doing a a bunch of... um, simple mathematical calculations involving just addition and multiplication, you can figure out whether uh, the usage of that word, for example, is statistically significant. Basically, is it higher than you would expect by chance? Yeah, I think if I could jump in here and add one other thing. So in 2004, I did the first peer-reviewed study of the scientific literature asking the question, was there a consensus among climate scientists that climate change was real, man-made, and underway? And sometimes people would ask me, well, what was my method? And my answer was, my method was reading. <laughs> so I read a thousand papers uh, and counted which ones agreed or disagreed with a consensus position. So what Jeffrey has done here, which is so brilliant, is that he's come, he's come up, uh, as he said, using existing techniques, but modifying them for our particular purpose here. He's come up with a really efficient way to count papers 
Okay, and that's that's important for reasons we'll talk about in a little bit. But Naomi, you reviewed these same documents in 2017. Why did you want to return to them? One of the questions that comes up in the whole story of the merchants of doubt, the creation of doubt about established scientific knowledge, is the question of lying. And people will sometimes say to me, well, are you saying that ExxonMobil lied? And one of the things that we've learned in our work is that much of this works not by outright lies, but by misrepresentation, by misleading claims, and misdirection of attention. And so this study, I think, really helps us to get at how that happens and how it could be the case that a company might say something which is not an outright lie, but because of the way they use language or the choice of terms, gives a very misleading impression of the state of scientific knowledge or the character of the problem. Um, yeah, if I were to, to add on that, it would just be, you know, as you noted, Laura, um, you know, in the past, we've demonstrated that ExxonMobil misled the public about basic climate science and its implications. And here our focus shifts from that outright climate denial to how it has in the own in the company's own words evolved into what we call often discourses of delay. So how have they gone from denialism to delayism? That was the question the study strove to ask. How beyond just outright disinformation has ExxonMobil used language in these more subtle ways to shape the way we think about climate change? Now, the documents you use, they're a mix of internal communications as well as ones that are directed at the public. Why did you use both types of documents? Yeah, so we looked at 212 documents in total spanning 1972 to 2019. We looked at the company's public-facing communications, primarily something called advertorials. These are paid editorial-style advertisements concerning climate change. Um, And we looked at the ones that Mobile and then ExxonMobil took out on the op-ed page of the New York Times. But we also looked at the company's um, flagship climate change reports. These are the corporate reports that the company puts out to allay the concerns of shareholders and and the public. Um, And so these are all public-facing documents. We compared that to the company's internal company memos that have led to allegations that the company has known about the basics of climate science for decades, and also the company's peer-reviewed publications. And so the idea is really here to ask, is there a difference between how a fossil fuel company talks about climate change internally from how it represents the problem to the public? Now, I actually read your report, um, and, oh, I, I, <laughs> and, I, and I noticed um, a, a, quite a number of references to the way the language that was used in these so-called advertorials. Um, but the company stopped using advertorials in 2009, and I'm curious to know, um, you talked about the public documents that's used since then. T- tell me more about those and whether the language that's used since then is the same as it was in the advertorials. So we look at these flagship climate change reports from 2002 to 2019. And one of the really fascinating insights of our study is we see the same rhetorical patterns in both the advertorials, which come up through 2009, and the the, the flagship reports, which come up through 2019. The same trends in terms of downplaying the the seriousness and the the, the, um, reality of climate change and also individualizing responsibility for for sorting it out. So we actually see remarkably consistent uh, trends that are indicative of, of, a, of a very systematic public affairs campaign. Interesting. Okay. So the, you, you counted words, combinations of words. What came up as the most common word or use or, or combinations of words? Yeah. So one of our main findings is that 
ExxonMobil has used and continues to use rhetoric mimicking the tobacco industry, firstly to publicly downplay the reality and seriousness of climate change by calling it a risk rather than a reality. And the second thing it does is to shift responsibility for climate change away from itself and onto consumers by publicly fixating on consumer energy, quote unquote, demand, rather than the fossil fuels that the company itself supplies. We can actually search for every usage of the terms climate change and global warming in these documents, um, and then look for what terms are associated with those, which ones appear nearby. The company gradually shifted from explicitly promoting debate about climate science to instead calling it a risk. The problem is they never called it a reality, and they have never corrected that record. Rather, what they seem to have done is changed the subject. Is there anything in the yeah. internal documents that refers to this as well as a, as a deliberate strategy that you found? What is really interesting is that someone called Herbert Schmertz, who was uh, Mobile's uh, vice president of public affairs in the 70s and 80s, and the person who pioneered this advertorial's campaign, he actually wrote in the late 80s about what he called the first guiding principle of effective public affairs. And what he said was, quote, grab the good words and stick your opponents with the bad ones. He talked about the idea of semantic infiltration, which he said was the process whereby language does the dirty work of politics. Naomi, you sounded like you wanted to jump in there. Yeah, and I, I was going to jump in with an example of semantic infiltration. So thank you for that perfect leading, Jeff. <laughs> so one thing that really stood out to me was that that the counting uh, identified was the use of a set of words that shift responsibility from ExxonMobil, who produced these products that create climate change, to the consumer. And so there's a set of words, demand, need, use, consumption, right? That, you know, the reason we have this problem is not because ExxonMobil produces a defective product, but because we need these things. We use them, we demand them. Um, and so in a sense, when we hear these words, need, use, demand, consumption, what ExxonMobil is, is saying is, it's our fault. I mean, our fault consumers, right? They're, they're denying responsibility for their own actions and saying, what's well, the fault of the consumer? And that is, rec that is reminiscent of tobacco, is it not? Correct. One of the key strategies that the tobacco industry used was to say, well, it's the choice. The smoker chooses to smoke. And therefore, if the smoker gets sick, it's their own responsibility. And you also found the word energy used a lot. And I'm wondering why that was a, a flag for you. Right. Well, there's this conflation of energy with fossil fuels. There's this kind of statement without any challenge by the company in, in public that if you, the consumers, need energy, automatically that, that basically implies the forever requirement and reliance on fossil fuels. And that's a conflation because that's not necessarily true. But the other discourses present within their communications essentially facilitate that narrative. So for example, we identify um, a discourse which we call um, fossil fuel solutionism, whereby they state as fact rather than opinion that fossil fuels will be relied necessarily relied on for decades and decades to come. That is, <laughs> frankly, um, partly a function of the operation of this industry, which has worked to protect and defend the status quo fossil fuel nature of society. So there's a kind of strange self-fulfilling prophecy to all this. And we call this overall framing um, the fossil fuel savior frame. What a, what a phrase. I mean, <laughs> I was actually just going to ask you to talk about frames um, because you've been su doing such a great job of making this so understandable. Fossil fuel savior. 
Um, how did you come up with that? And, and, and what more does it mean beyond what you've already told us about? Well, I, I think to kind of bring together all these different concepts we've been talking about, all of this has the, the hallmarks of what Big Tobacco did, as Naomi was saying, using the rhetoric of risk and demand to justify business as usual. The, the reasoning they used to get to those conclusions, tobacco and fossil fuels are slightly different. And yet the end result is the same. And that's that the company is presented as an innocent supplier, simply giving consumers what they demand. And in this fossil fuel savior frame, you know, ExxonMobil are the good guys who we should trust to innovate and address the risks that we, the public, have brought upon their, ourselves. It's it's incredibly subtle and, and, and frankly a bit patronizing because it's gaslighting to insist that as facts that consumers are responsible and then present the company as a trustworthy innovator who we should rely on to, to make things better. Naomi, I, I was struck by the suggestion in the paper that, that ExxonMobil was in effect um, grooming the public, which is the word that's used in the study. Can you explain that a bit more? Well, part of the idea of these frameworks is to create an impression of, of the company and to structure how we think about it. ExxonMobil wants us to think that they're the good guys that first they did this good thing that by providing us with the energy we needed, and now they're doing a good thing because they're helping to figure out the solutions. And both of these frameworks are deeply misleading, if not completely false. The reality is that ExxonMobil for more than 30 years has stood in the way of climate action, in part by fighting the science, in part through their lobbying efforts um, and through their advertising campaigns. And, and even today, they continue to have a business model based on the continuing use of oil and gas well into the far future. So they have not been working, acting in good faith for the last 30 years, and I think they're not acting in good faith now. But they want the American people to think that they are. And this is really important because it affects decisions that people make. And they have served to perpetuate a system that is causing huge amounts of damage, trillions of dollars um, in both direct and indirect costs, huge impacts on public health. Uh, people's homes and communities have been destroyed by extreme weather events that have become worse because of fossil fuel uh, use. Whatever else you think, though, it's it's been a success, no? Exactly. Well, that's the point. It's been hugely successful, right? You know, the Republican Party's 2020 agenda was premised on the idea that, quote, fossil fuels aren't the enemy, it's emissions. And frankly, even the Paris Climate Agreement doesn't mention fossil fuels. So, you know, we're certainly not claiming that ExxonMobil alone is responsible for all of this mindset. But what our work does is start to prove that um, the fo fossil fuel propaganda has been at least one of the sources um, of this skewed biased perspective of, of overhyped personal responsibility. And, and as Naomi was saying, these narratives just are pervasive now across society. So this does apply to other fossil fuel companies then? For sure. We see um, this ev evidence and manifest in uh, PR campaigns of fossil fuel majors um, now all the time just ongoing. So, you know, one of the one of the most powerful uh, anecdotal examples of this is that, you know, you and I, we often talk about our personal carbon footprints. The very notion of a personal carbon footprint was first popularized by BP oil company in a 2004 to 2006 major US media campaign, totaling more than $100 million per year. They literally created the first carbon footprint calculator and put it on their website and pointed to it from their adverts. And, you know, this is incredibly clever uh, stuff because um, this language draws on uh, concepts which can be used in good faith and are by others. But it 
turns it on its head and weaponizes it, just like they've weaponized previously terms like uncertainty um, in order to fuel a sense of confusion and inaction. That on its website and in the past, it says criticisms of, of what it does have been a coordinated effort by activists. And I'm curious what your response is to that. I'm going to jump in here. I think this is a beautiful example of Exxon doing exactly what we've shown they did, which is the misdirection. So instead of actually addressing the concerns, instead of addressing the claims, instead of saying, I don't know, anything they might say that could potentially explain or exonerate their actions, they're trying to shift attention to us. They're trying to make it about us. But this isn't about us. This is about them and the things they did or didn't do and the things they said or didn't say. Jeffrey? We publish science and Exxon offers spin. And there's no other way to really sum this up other than Exxon is now misleading the public about its history of misleading the public. I can imagine some people who are listening to this um, and, and they'll, they, they're well used to a company saying different things to the public than they do in their internal discussions and, and know that companies spin the truth to help sell their products. And I'm wondering what you say to that, that this is all just a part of doing business. I, I think there's two things we want to say to that. I mean, one is that most products that most companies sell are not threatening the very existence of civilization as we know it. So I think we do have a right to hold the oil and gas and coal industries to a higher standard because the stakes here are so high. So if a company tells you, you know, my genes will make you feel great. Well, you know, maybe they will, maybe they won't. Some genes do make me feel great. So it's not a lie. And it might be a matter of subjective opinion. And we know that the company is probably exaggerating how great I will feel in those genes. But it might not be entirely untrue. And in any event, if it isn't true, there's no great harm done to the consumer. But here we're talking about something where ExxonMobil and other fossil fuel companies have said many things that are demonstrably misleading at best, if not outright falsehoods. And what is at stake is the health, well-being, the prosperity of all of us, not just those of us who actually use ExxonMobil gas, but all of us, every single person and plant and animal on this planet is being affected by the actions of this company. And that's the other big difference. When you buy a pair of jeans, you have a decision to make. You can decide to buy those jeans or not. But none of us individually can decide whether or not to have climate change. Climate change is happening, and it's happening to a great extent because of the actions of companies like ExxonMobil. And so that puts this in a different category than the usual advertising, marketing, and spin. And the other thing, of course, is that the law is actually fairly clear on this point. Yes, advertising tends to exaggerate, and yes, we all know that, but the law does not permit people to commit fraud, and the First Amendment does not protect fraud. So if the claims of a company rise to the level of constituting fraud, that breaks the law, that crosses a line. Now, Jeffrey and I are not lawyers, so we're not in a position to judge whether what we have documented crosses that legal line, but other people are in the position to make that judgment. And so part of what motivates this work is for people who are in the position to make those judgments to be able to look at this evidence and determine whether or not these actions may have broken the law. And right here in Massachusetts, Maura Healy, the attorney general, has filed suit against ExxonMobil under consumer protection laws in this state. Right. And I, I did want to bring that up because there are court cases, as you say, underway in the United States against oil companies. So where does your research fit into that type of litigation? Jeffrey's a data scientist. I'm a historian. And what we're interested in is evidence, historical evidence, scientific evidence. I mean, I've set, spent my whole life studying scientific evidence and understanding how scientific evidence is used to support or reject scientific claims. 
And so what we see our work as doing is providing evidence to people who want to understand this issue better. And that could be ordinary people, could be citizens trying to decide how to vote or how to think about the problem, as you suggested earlier. It could be lawyers and attorneys general who are trying to decide whether laws have been broken. It could be shareholders who are trying to decide whether to hold on to their shares or sell them. And it could be institutional investors. So we think there are a lot of people who have a strong interest in knowing the truth about this history. And it's our job to do our best to show what that truth is. If somebody's trying to, if somebody's suing or some state or, or whoever is suing, the research that you've done, how would that be applied practically? Everything that we know about the fossil fuel industry, we know based on just a few hundred documents. Um, effectively, we know all about the skeletons in the closet so far just by peeping through the keyhole in that closet. And if the litigation against the fossil fuel industry goes anything like litigation against the tobacco industry, document discovery is eventually going to yield thousands, maybe millions of documents. And when we get to that level, although tobacco scholars have done a brilliant job of sifting through all of that data, um, we think that one complementary approach is to use these big data tools that we now have at our disposal in order to more quickly and efficiently and quantifiably identify the sorts of trends that we're now discussing. So we, we did touch on tobacco, and you've drawn the parallel that the tactics echo those of tobacco companies. Why do you think that the use of the approach that some oil companies putting the responsibility on consumers hasn't got more attention from the public? Well, I think that most of the time the public is just busy. You know, most people are trying to live their lives. They're trying to get their kids to soccer games or get their work done or get dinner on the table. And, you know, most people don't have the bandwidth to be really paying attention and tracking these kinds of issues. So I think one of the ways that um, Jeffrey and I understand our work is that we do work that other people don't have the time or ability to do. And then as much as possible through things like talking to you and, and reaching out to your listeners, we make our findings available as much as possible in plain language where we can mm -hmm. um, so that people can learn about these problems without having to become PhD scientists themselves. Jeffrey, last word to you. We see our work as trying to uncover the truth and to understand some of this history and how it relates uh, and maybe can inform um, how society can better address the climate crisis. And hopefully we've done a good enough job of explaining it that people will, will now be slightly better informed, as we are after doing this work, as to where this fixation on personal responsibility has come from. Thanks to both of you very much for your time. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. That interview with Jeffrey Supran and Naomi Oreskes first aired in May of 2021. We asked ExxonMobil for comment and it didn't dispute the new findings. It did take issue with Supran and Oreski's previous work. A spokesman pointed to a study paid for by ExxonMobil that was published without peer review, considered the gold standard for academic research. ExxonMobil also said it supports the Paris Climate Agreement, and last February it launched a new business on the concept of a low-carbon solution. And that is it for us this week. We love to hear from you. So if you have a question about climate change, let us know. Our email address is earth at cbc.ca. Or you can follow the show on Twitter at CBC What on Earth or me at Laura Lynch CBC. The What on Earth team includes associate producer Danielle Piper, producers Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Our senior producer is Monisha Janakaram. 
I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.